Welcome to Reasoning Through the Bible. On today's session, we're going to take a small departure from our normal verse-by-verse Bible study and answer some questions and that, have, that we've picked up from some listeners and from different places. So if you're just listening to the questions, we'd encourage you to listen to the main body of our work, which is our verse-by-verse Bible studies. But today we're going to dive into some questions that we've gathered from different places. So are you ready, Steve? I am ready. Okay, so the first question that we have here before us today is regarding faith and works, what constitutes a work? So this is in the context, of course, with Christian salvation. So the question is, what constitutes a work? So where do we start with a question like that? Well, I think what constitutes a work is some sort of an effort that we do on our part that we have the idea that what we do, a deed or something akin to that, that it would make us righteous in God's eyes, that based upon something that we do, God is going to look favorable upon us to the point that he will find us righteous. And of course, to be found righteous goes along with having salvation. So I think number one is to start with, Scripture is pretty clear that there's nothing that we can physically do, any type of a work that we can do in order to find righteousness in front of God. Correct. That's the context here. It's What it's not talking about is just work you might do in your job or work you might do around your home, things like that. This is talking about in a biblical New Testament context, it is a work that would earn some sort of righteousness before God. That is a work. A work is something that might be done in order to either earn righteousness or make us in a right relationship with God. For example, the Old Testament commandments, the Old Testament law required some sacrifices of animals, required eating certain foods, sacrificing those animals and going to the celebrations for the holidays, eating the correct foods, all of those doing those things would be considered a work. So, Glenn, the way that the question is posed here, it says regarding faith and works, what constitutes a work? So we've just discussed and described what constitutes a work. Where does the faith come into this question? Well, there's some baggage behind this question that I think we need to help our listeners in, in the sense that there are some disagreements in different Christian circles about which actions constitute a work. For example, one of the commandments that Christians are required to do is to be baptized. One legitimate Christians sometimes have disagreements over, is baptism a work or things like that? Let me just read some Bible passages, and I think it'll help us because what we're really getting into with this question is the actual act of faith considered to be a work. And if so, if faith is considered to be a work, then faith can't be anything that would get us right with God again, because it specifically says in the New Testament, for example, Romans 3.27, what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. So he's contrasting the law of works and the law of faith. 
So in Romans, it's holding faith to be a very different thing than works. Another one is Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So again, he contrasts works on one hand and faith on the other. Still again in Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Jesus. So again, it contrasts faith and works. The short answer to the question is, and those are just a few, there's many of those passages that contrast faith and works. If it's of works, it's not of faith. If it's of faith, it's not of works. So we would just merely conclude that faith is not a work. It's not a work of righteousness. The act of believing in the Lord Jesus for salvation is not a work. It's, it's a trust. It's nothing that would earn us righteousness or else those passages just mentioned don't make any sense. So, Steve, what other things could we add to that? Well, I, I believe that where this is coming from is there's a theology that has the doctrine that one, some God has to regenerate a person first so that they can understand the gospel. Then they can express their faith, but they have to be regenerated first. God has to do something in that person first in order to give the person the ability to have faith. I think that that's kind of where this is. What you just read there in these scriptures, there's no scriptures that I know of that says regeneration comes before faith. It sounds like a little bit that they've come up with this doctrine that, well, since you have to be regenerated first, then therefore faith must be a work. And it's just, I don't know, it just kind of goes against what scripture says itself. Because faith is just that. It's just expressing belief and trust in God in the promises. Abraham, that is used by Paul and others all the time uh, regarding faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't a work for Abraham to have faith in God and the promises that he gave. There's just nothing there in Scripture that I see that talks about this idea of regeneration, that God has to do a work in you before you can have faith. Now, do you think that that's where this question is coming from? I think it might cover that, but I think it's also most probably broader than that. It covers other things too. Again, the, the questions we get, we get submitted and we don't always get a chance to interact with the questioner to flesh out exactly the meaning behind it. But as it was submitted is, again, regarding faith and works, what constitutes a work? With no more or less than that, yes, it could cover the regeneration thing that you just talked about. It, it's also possible that the question could cover things such as Baptism, circumcision. Uh, remember in the Old Testament, all the way back in Abraham's day, God commanded Abraham and his descendants to circumcise the male child. In the book of Galatians and in the book of Romans chapter 4, it specifically deals with this idea of is obedience of circumcision considered something that makes us right before God? And Paul, some of those passages I was reading says, no, no, it's, it's not of obedience through circumcision. That's, that's a work. 
and it, it's of, of faith. And likewise with baptism, there's passages in the New Testament that make a correlation between the seal of circumcision as a seal of a covenant and the seal of baptism as a seal of a covenant. And then the question would be, okay, is baptism the act of going under the water? Is that a, a work of righteousness? So it, any things like that would be, is that a work? That's part of the question. Yeah. Okay. So let me rephrase this to see if I'm understanding. So it could be that what this uh, person is asking is that I'm having faith that the works that I do will bring me righteousness. Is that kind of what you're also saying that, all right, I'm, I'm, I know I need to do works in order to be found righteous before God. There are certain things that I have to do. I have to be baptized and I have to be baptized by a certain person and, and et cetera. I'm having faith that if I do those specific things, then God will find me righteous behind them. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, what, what my mind falls to is this. At what point is obedience and what point is faith in salvation? There are things like the New Testament is, is many, many, many commandments of things that we're supposed to do. The last half of the majority of Paul's epistles have a series of commands on how we're to treat other people, how we're to direct the churches, how we're to, I mean, all these are works that we do, but what they're not are works of righteousness that earn us before God. That's the distinction. So a work in the New Testament, again, is the original definition we gave is the straightforward answer to the question. A work is anything that would in in the salvific context, a work is anything that would earn us righteousness before God. Our salvation is not of works in any shape, way, or form. We are, after we're saved, we are to obey. We are given commandments. We're supposed to do works, and we earn rewards in heaven because of works, but we don't earn salvation. Yeah, I think my last comment on this would be that, yeah, if a person believes that what they do, if they have, if they're putting their faith in works, then no, their faith needs to be in God and the promises that he has given or Jesus Christ and the promise that he has given, which is separate from works. However, once we place our faith in Jesus Christ and we become a new creature, then we have that desire to do the things and obey what you just mentioned. So, yeah, if a person is saying, okay, the works, I'm, ha I'm putting my faith in the works that I do, it's a misplaced faith. I'll just list off some examples. Being baptized, uh, taking communion, or Roman Catholic term would be Eucharist, or going to church, or saying prayers. All of these things are things that we are commanded to do in the New Testament as Christians, or giving to the poor, reaching out to the needy, visiting prisoners, or helping strangers. All these things are things that we are to do as Christians. We may earn ourselves rewards in heaven for them, but faith is not any of those things. None of those things that I listed are faith simply because faith is just trusting God and that's how we're saved, not by doing any of these things. So let's move on to the next question. Is Christianity a white man's religion? And of course, with this, again, we don't get context for a lot of these. 
But I can imagine because I've, I've heard some of this in some of the popular culture, especially in North America, United States in our day. What we have here is, at least to me, this is a question that's expressed from a context in a place that sees Christianity in, in kind of a limited perspective of possibly, you know, the history of Christianity coming from white people. I, I can only guess is that's the perspective of the questioner. Well, as we start this, can I quote a Bible verse? Sure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So that's John three sixteen. I assume that world means world. And world would encompass all nations that are on the globe. So I think that's where I would want to start that, it, no, it's not limited to just white people. And the Great Commission at the very tail end of Matthew, right here in red and white, Jesus' words, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. From a biblical perspective, we have here that there, there's no distinctions in things. We not long ago studied Colossians, Steve, where it says uh, there's no distinction between Jew or Greek, slave or free. That, that's from a biblical perspective. There, there isn't a one ethnic group that gets picked. From a church history standpoint, Christianity was in Africa, before it was in Europe. I mean, the book of Acts, it, it started in the Mideast. It, it wasn't started by Anglo-Saxons, which were kind of European white folks. It was started by people in Israel and in, in that region. And in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch took Christianity to Africa much sooner than North America. I mean, St. Augustine, was was African. He was from North Africa. Is it a white man's religion? I, I can only guess that people that would claim that, again, have kind of a sort of limited perspective. Possibly people that would see this might, that's what they see. But I know in, in our day, Steve, as far as growth of Christianity, it's not growing in our day where the white people live. It's growing in places like Africa and South America. It's, it's growing in places like that. I honestly didn't look up the percentages of numbers of people all around the world and what their skin colors are, but it really don't matter. Because again, these passages we said go into all the world. If we look at the Apostle Paul, he had people from all types of backgrounds and, and all types of nationalities that were on his ministry team. Yeah, so I, I think the short answer is no, but I think there's maybe an underlying question here that I kind of see. And what I mean by that is if Christianity is true or worth following, then what difference does it make where it started or who started it? The real question is whether Christianity is true or not and whether or not it's something that can be followed. So regardless of who started it, or what ethnicity might have started it. The real question I think that this person, whoever submitted it, might be saying is, is that I don't really believe Christianity. It's just some something that was started by a bunch of white men. And that's a separate question on whether or not Christianity is true and worth following. Oftentimes might be used as an excuse not to believe. Would people, if, if we refute this one, they'll, they'll think of another one. I, I think of if, if you study formal logic, there is an actual 
logical fallacy that's called the genetic fallacy. And the genetic fallacy says, oh, well, that person came from the wrong university, so everything they say, we, we don't have to believe. Or, yeah, look what town they're from, or something like that. It has nothing to do with whether they, what they say is true or false. It's sort of like saying, okay, yeah, that's what he claims, but he's left-handed. Well, what has that got anything to do <laughs> with whether or not his statements are yeah. true or false? Hey, I, hey I'm left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> and so is Christianity, white man's religion? I would, again, if I haven't done the research, but I did. I would think that if we look across church history, the percentage of people that are from one ethnic origin or another, it probably surprise us simply because they're probably different than whoever we are at the time. The answer, quick answer, is it a white man's religion? No, because it, it didn't start with white men. It didn't spread to white men first. And white people, European, Anglo-Saxons kind of came late to the game is actually kind of the answer. So moving on to the next question that was submitted to us, can our tongues declare things to be? Can we speak things into existence? I think the context here is in terms of like uh, not only physical healing, but financial things. We can also look at it in terms of like in a church or something, maybe we've got a, like a building program going on or something. If we uh, declare things, then there's a lot greater chance of, of happening. So, Steve, can our tongues say things that affect reality? I think there's a couple of areas here. There's one area that deals with positive thinking. The thought is don't think about negative things, because if you think about negative things, you kind of uh, bring that negativity into your life. There was a person, I think it was more of a secular, Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking. And I believe that that's kind of filtered its way a little bit into some of the Christian churches in this thought of do nothing but give positive affirmations all the time. Don't say anything negative. But I think there's another movement where they actually believe and teach that we are made in the image of God. And their teaching is, is that we are godlike ourselves. God spoke the universe and the world and the earth into existence by speaking. And since we're little gods, that we can do the same thing through the things that we speak and that we can heal people or we can bring things into our life and create things just by speaking it, just like how God did. And that is a very, very dangerous doctrine and teaching to follow because there we are in no shape, form or fashion God-like from that perspective. From that perspective, we would label that the word faith movement, which says if you say a word in faith, then the power of the faith will cause reality to change, will cause bodies to physically heal or cause money to occur in the bank account or people have claimed to have moved hurricanes, you know, th things like that. We would totally reject that. That is occultism. I any sort of power, even if we claim it's a power originated in God, if it's something that we go and direct towards somebody with something we do, like words we say or incantations or eye of newt, toe of frog at, at, the, at the dark of night and a full moon or something, then all of that is occultism. And we need to completely stay away from that. Now, what I can say, there is a sense 
in which we can say things and cause things to happen. And that is in a sense very different than what we've mentioned so far. But it's in a sense of, say, for example, parents raising children. If the parent is constantly telling the child all during the time they're growing up, you're weak, you're a failure, you can't do anything, you're always messing up, all you ever do is do things wrong, how come you're not any better? Well, you can actually cause the child to grow up with some sort of a psychological conflict. You can also, just in groups of adults, you can say depressing things that cause the whole group to kind of be down, or you can say approving things that would raise people's attitudes. So yeah, there is a sense where you can change the emotional atmosphere in a room or the emotional atmosphere of a group of people by saying things that are pleasant or saying things that are depressing. But I think that's very different than where the questioner came in. Can we declare things and then things in the world change? No, that, that's occultism. So one more question here, Steve. To what extent are the effects of sin in cre both in creation and in humans? We know that the Bible talks about sin and it affected us. So how far can we take that? So the first thing I think of is Romans chapter 5 talks about death entering the world through sin. And through Adam, death entered the world. Then also, I also think over in Genesis chapter 3, God deals with Adam and Eve when they sin. And God tells them the ground is going to, you know, in labor, you're going to have to bring forth fruit out of the land and it's going to grow thorns and, and thistles. The woman's going to have pain in childbirth. From those things, we can take some degree of answer that, yes, sin affects both the world and people. We're told we have sin. We're told that the sin has put a wall in between us and God. We're told that we're far off from God because of sin needing to be brought near. We're told that we're in the dark in need of light. We're told that we're dead in need of life. There's a series of things. I think there's about 16 or 17 different things that God says because of sin, you are separated, you're lost, you're, you're all these things. So it has affected our spiritual relationship with God. What else can we say sin has affected us in the world? Well, we're also told in Scripture that creation itself is moaning and groaning for redemption. Often we think of redemption related only to humans, but the creation itself is going to be redeemed upon Christ's return. That's the way that sin has affected creation in that it groans to go back to the beginning at the Garden of Eden. One other quick thing here, sin itself the word itself in the New Testament means to miss the mark. Well, there's that concept of whenever we sin, we're missing the mark of what God has for us or what God wants us to be. That's why we need to always strive to, as it says, the Colossians, to put on the new man and put away the old self. Sin extends to, it gives us this position of being in the darkness and away from the light and all the other type of descriptions that are given that we're just separated from God from the very beginning. And in order to be reconciled to him, 
we can do that through the belief in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter five, it talks about this grand plan of God. And it talks about how Adam came and sin came through Adam and death through sin. Well, death in that context is separation. We're not annihilated. We're separated through sin. But then through Jesus, we're reconciled again. So just like people are separated from God through sin and we then have reconciliation, so does the creation. The creation had these flaws enter it through sin. And the creation will be reconciled again. The book of Revelation talks about a new heaven and a new earth and a renewal of creation. And there's passages that, yeah, it's poetic, but it, there's passages in the Bible that talks about the, the baby playing at the cobra snake and the lion laying down at the lamb. Well, the idea here is that there'll be reconciliation, not just in us, but in all of creation. The world's going to be made right again. If anybody would just look at the world that's lived for any length of time, there's something wrong. There's just something wrong. Things don't work right. Our bodies fall apart. The machines around us break and fall apart. The trees grow up and die and fall apart. There's things that's just wrong, and it's originated with sin. So both in creation and in humankind, we have this separation. We've got death. We've got all these things that happen. But when we're reconciled, then we're made right again. And there'll come a day when Jesus comes back, remakes the world, and the world will be reconciled. So with that, we'll stop for today. Those were the questions we had. If you have questions, then please send them to us. You can submit them through our website, or you can also submit them via email to info, that's I-N-F-O, at reasoningthroughthebible.com. We'll be back next time as we reason through the Bible. And until then, we pray that God would solve all your problems and answer all your questions. Thank you for watching and listening. May God bless you.